So today, we have a very special guest, Glenn Hubbard, who is a professor and former dean of Columbia Business School. In addition, he was the chair of the U.S. Council of Economic Advisors to George W. Bush from 2001 to 2003. So first off, thank you, Dean Hubbard, for taking the time to join the podcast today. It's a pleasure to have you on. It's my pleasure. Thank you. I appreciate it. So let's first start off with your book, The Wall and the Bridge, which is a recent book you announced back in January of this year. What is the book and why did you decide to write it? Well, great question. To me, we've been living through a period of enormous upheaval, both in the economy from technological change and globalization, and in our politics and political economy with the rise of populism and some social pathologies. And to me, these are all the same subject. And the the story that I, I tell in the book, which is really a very long love letter to Adam Smith and classical economists, is is the following. You know, we all love growth, and that's great. That's our future. That's our living standards. That's what generates everything for us. That said, when economists talk about growth, they don't have in mind a world where you get to grow a little bit each year and nobody gets hurt. Growth is very disruptive. And so if you think of a coin where the heads is growth, the tails is disruption and change. That's always been true. Adam Smith told you that, and every economist since has told you that. Here's the problem. Our political economy in an era where technological change, first and foremost, and to a less extent globalization, has changed people's lives, has said, why don't we just try to tell people we can make their problems go away? That's what I call walls. A wall can be physical. I'm going to build a wall on the Mexican border. I'm going to stop immigrants from coming into the country. I'm going to stop new ideas and new ways of doing business. That's very easy to say. It's very politically appealing. It's very harmful. And I give a number of studies over history. Walls always fail. The alternative is to build a bridge. You know, a bridge is is something that takes you to something or takes you back from something. And In the book, I talk a lot about bridges of preparation, taking you to the economy that actually is and will be, and then taking you back if you got thrown out of the boat, as it were, by technological change and globalization. So this walls and bridges metaphor I take from classical economics to the present and and build a lot on my colleague in the econ department, Ned Phelps, who's a Nobel Prize winner in economics, who has a notion that I hearken back actually to Adam Smith, of mass flourishing. The goal for our economy is mass flourishing, getting everybody into the boat. And that's what the book's about. Definitely. And you brought up Adam Smith. And for those people in the audience who might not be as familiar with Adam Smith, who is he and why is he so instrumental in economics? Well, it's interesting. You know, economists talk about Adam Smith as the father of modern economics largely because of a book he wrote called The Wealth of Nations in 1776, the same year the revolution began in in the United States. And Smith's thesis in The Wealth of Nations was really radical. It was up until that time, there was a philosophy called mercantilism, which sounds a lot like protectionism today, that the goal of a country ought to be to minimize trade deficits, to keep everything inside the country, to maximize stocks of gold and silver for, at the time, the king or queen to use as they saw fit. Smith came along and said, nope, nope, wealth of a nation, not gold, not silver, not land. It's the ability of average people, us, all of us, to consume. 
A rich nation is one in which everybody is able to consume a lot. That's Smith's intuition. That's It sounds simple today. It's going to Econ 101 today. It was radical at the time. The point I make in the book is that while people point to that aspect of Smith, who was, by the way, at the time, really a moral philosopher, there was no such thing as quote, economics when Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations. 17 years prior to The Wealth of Nations, he wrote a book called The Theory of Moral Sentiments. It's probably the true Smith. It is a book of philosophy, of moral philosophy. And he centers on a concept called mutual sympathy. In his words, in today's parlance, we would probably say empathy. And so I think of Smith as being one who isn't just about the world of competition, which is what the Wealth of Nations is about. It's competition and the so-called invisible hand that make you better off. It's really Smith of the theory of moral sentiments is the ability to compete is important. So going back to what I said about preparation and bridges, we need to make sure everybody has a chance to compete in the economy that is, rather than just saying, okay, this group of people, they have a chance to compete. The rest of them, you know, whatever, we'll pinch them off. That is not acceptable in Smith's worldview, and it shouldn't be acceptable in ours. Definitely. And your point on walls and bridges is a good one. And one I want to touch on a little bit. What do you think are some missed bridges that we could have had in the past in the United States and some current bridges that we can take opportunities of that we aren't possibly yet? Great question. And I want to begin by looking back into history, because I know sometimes people say, well, when an economist has what looks like a new idea, it's just too hard to do. This country excelled at bridges in the past. Take Abraham Lincoln. In the middle of the Civil War, an existential struggle for the nation, Lincoln does land-grant colleges, the Homestead Act, the Transcontinental Railroad, let alone emancipation. These were all the use of government as a battering ram for opportunity. Go back and read Lincoln's speeches from his Lyceum speeches as a young man to his speeches going into campaigning for the presidency, they were all about bridges of opportunity. That's all he was in, in terms of an economic thinker. Franklin Roosevelt wasn't just a president of the New Deal and of the war. He was the president of the GI Bill. Think of the millions of men and women who were returning home to an economy that had changed. Roosevelt's intuition was, why don't we give people the tools to live in the economy that will be? We have done these big things. Indeed, in the book, I use the land-grant colleges, one of Lincoln's Lincoln-era policies, as a metaphor for today. Today's bridges, the modern era's version of a land-grant college, would be to strengthen community colleges. They are the part of tertiary education in the United States that really is the foot soldiers of training men and women for beginning of career jobs in the industries of today and retraining people who've lost their way. We need a federal block grant for community colleges, just like we had for the land grant colleges in President Lincoln's time. We need to support work more. You know, we have programs in the United States, like the Earned Income Tax Credit, that were talked about as work support, but are really not that generous to younger people who don't have children. And, and the important thing is to get people engaged in work. You know, so much of skill gaining comes from on-the-job experience, not from a book or going to school. So I think there's much more we can do to, to support work. And business needs to get 
involved here too. Business shouldn't be taking social support for the system as given and should be participating a lot in the training and skill development of workers. And finally, I talk in the book about the need to rethink what economists call place-based aid, aid to communities left behind. I talk about some areas in the country that did well in response to change, others that did poorly, and we can use targeted aid to communities to really help those communities adjust. One of the themes in the book and a bridge building is the idea that we do need to help people adjust when the shocks that they're experiencing are things way beyond their control. You know, you and I don't get to control the speed of globalization or the arrival of technological change. It doesn't matter how hard you work, how much you study, you can't overcome that. And so we really need to help people adapt to change rather than just thinking of pensioning them off. I totally agree. Those are some great points. And before we delve into some things that are currently going on with the economy, one thing I did want to touch on was the attack on 9-11 and its economic impact. When that happened, you were the chair of the U.S. Council of Economic Advisors for George W. Bush, and the market was shut down for a couple of days at the time, but it could have potentially been much longer. So what was going through your mind at the time and the conversations that were taking place behind the scenes? Well, it's interesting. I was in the White House, of course, on, on 9-11. The president was not. He was on the road that day in Florida, I believe. And when we got the word of the attacks, when they evacuated the White House, I actually had one of my most senior staff people was on crutches. And I remember as everybody was panicking and leaving the building, I had to gently carry him down three flights of, flights of stairs. And I'm not that <laughs> strong. <laughs> so it was a, I, that's definitely one of my memories of that day. But I got the staff together first in Lafayette Park and then off-site to begin thinking of, you know, okay, 9-11 just happened. How do we think about airlines? How do we think about payment systems? You know, economists have this way of thinking of how are things interconnected in the world and we get on top of it. You mentioned the markets being closed. I actually wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal the morning the stock market reopened, where I said, be patient. Let's do a discounted cash flow of America, as it were. 9-11 is horrible, but it wasn't an extreme wealth destroyer for America. And so I think sometimes that analytics is very important. You know, those sorts of events have played back too many times to be one-offs. I mean, think of the financial crisis as another Example for those sort of interrelationship thinking, the COVID pandemic. Now we're living through the geopolitical crisis of Ukraine. These things will occur. Some of them come from nature, like pandemics, but some of them are from the good or bad of man. And so I think policymakers, economists, we as business people have to be nimble in thinking these things through. Thinking like an economist, I'm talking my own book, but it's a really good thing to do. And in terms of thinking like an economist, with George W. Bush's administration, you led a battle on steel tariffs, which could maximize national income and do a couple other things. But he disagreed with the pitch because of what was he going to say to other people in other parts of the country who might have been more isolated. So how did that moment change your thinking or expand the variables you look at when evaluating economic decisions? It's a wonderful question, Seamus, and it completely changed the way I looked at the problem. I, I like to think that I learned more from President Bush that day 
than he got in terms of quote, expert advice from me. You know, the morning I was to give him the briefing on the steel tariffs, I was already you know, revved up to do it. I, I knew I had the arguments right. And I also knew the president was quite smart and would get them. But my wife reminded me at breakfast, you know, the world is divided into two groups of people, economists and real people. And she said, you're an economist from central casting and George Bush is a real person from central casting. So be careful in how you talk to him. And so when I saw the president that morning, I showed him a ch two charts. The first chart was a declining labor share. And he said, that's what I'm trying to stop. I'm trying to arrest the decline in manufacturing jobs. And I said, but Mr. President, I just showed you agriculture 1900 to 1940. I just didn't label the chart. Did you want to put those people back on the farm? And I could tell by the look on his face that I, I'd scored some points. So I went on to my second chart. And it was a chart of job losses around the country. And he said, well, wait, I, I thought the steel tariffs are going to protect steel jobs. And I said, perhaps, sir, but think of all the industries that use steel and all the people that buy the products that have steel in them. They're now worse off as a result of it. You're going to lose more jobs than you say. And I could tell again that I had made points. He called me in when he was making the decision the other way. And he said, I agreed with everything you said. And I said, well, then why are you going the other way? And that's when the lesson came that you hinted at. He said, you didn't tell me anything I could have done. You see, the president and the vice president, when they were campaigning, had gone to places like Wheeling, West Virginia, and made statements that they were going to bail these people out. And yet, None of his advisors had told him how to do that. And part of the ideas in the books like The Wall and the Bridge is to give a politician an answer of positive things he or she might be able to do, as opposed to reaching for the bottle of protectionism, a classic wall. Definitely. I think that's a great point. And before we delve into what's currently going on with inflation, I did want to touch on the financial crisis a little bit. And I might not have the best perspective on this because at the time of the financial crisis, I was three years old. But as I was doing some research, uh, one of the questions that popped up in my mind was we had a couple of economists call the bell early on, but it wasn't really mass spread until we were too deep into it. And then I guess the question that comes up is why didn't people see the financial crisis? Why was that? And what can we do to make sure that for future financial crises, we do see it coming and prepare for it properly? Fantastic question. And in fact, the late Queen of England asked that question in the fall of 2008. She showed up at the London School of Economics, I believe, to dedicate a new building. And it was for the economics faculty. So she's sitting there with a room full of economists. And she's, you know, had her pearls, handbag, you know, the usual queen getup. And she said, why did nobody see it coming? And I think what she was asking is, how can there be slow-moving major things that you experts don't see? And the answer to the queen's question and your question is hard and easy. The hard part I won't give is lots of technical reasons, but the easy part is to notice you have to be looking for something. And what I've said to politicians and I've said to business leaders, if you wanna understand what's happening in the dynamic and the fabric of the, of the country, you have to go talk to people. Economists were not talking to people in financial markets. I think a lot of economists had no idea or little idea about the financial innovation. They knew about the volume of subprime securities, 
but not about mortgage securities, but not about the edifice of securities that have been built on top of them. And likewise, when we're talking about globalization and technological change, if your view as a CEO is only how efficient the company is without regard to the political dislocations that you're causing, you too fall prey to the Queen's question. Interesting. And now that we talk about inflation now, we currently have a 2% inflation target, as does most of the world. And it came, it was born from the governor of the reserve of the Bank of New Zealand, which aimed to target a 1% with a marginal error of a 2%. And then it became uh, widespread around the globe. But now that we're above 5% inflation, history shows, especially in the United States, it can be really difficult to get back to that 2% inflationary rate. And then Peter Schiff has even recently stated that inflation is here to stay. It'll get much worse despite the rate, rate hikes because of a decade of inflationary monetary and fiscal policy. But what are your thoughts on this? And then what should the Fed or the economy be looking at right now? Great questions. I think we will get rid of inflation, meaning pushing it back down toward 2%, but it will be quite painful. So a little bit on the 2%, I actually thought Alan Greenspan, when he was the chairman of the Fed, had the best way of putting it. He said, you know, inflation is not a problem when average people aren't talking about it. And so rather than saying it's 2% or whatever, in the US, the number two really comes from a fact that a commission chaired by a Stanford economist, Michael Boskin, some years ago, estimated that basically 2% inflation, the way we measure things in the United States, is roughly equivalent to price stability. Personally, I don't think we should have put a specific number for a variety of reasons, but we have. And so we have the 2% number. Getting inflation down from 8 plus to 4 is not going to be so difficult. That's going to be about supply chain disruptions being eased and so on. Going from four to two is going to be painful because when economists say it's going to require a lot of demand destruction, that's just a polite way of saying a lot of people are going to have to lose their jobs. Incomes are going to have to fall. That's what it's going to take to put the inflation genie back in the bottle. Is the Fed committed to doing that? I think they are. The political process, of course, may make that difficult. I'm not naive, but I, I think we will get the genie back in the bottle, but it will be painful. If you look at the period when I was in graduate school, back in the late 1970s, early 1980s, when Paul Volcker had taken over as chair of the Fed, that was a very painful period to arrest inflation. And I fear we're we're headed that way again. I think one thing that is different or could be considered different about this time is in past recessions, the measure of economic production or GDP would generally go down and unemployment would go up. But currently what's happening right now, and although we're technically not in a recession, the GDP is decreasing. But we also have unemployment that's also decreasing because there's 11 plus million job openings and only 4.5 million plus of them are fulfilled. So we have a really big gap of wide jobs available. So do you think it's possible that we could avoid a recession entirely? Or if we did have one, it would just look entirely different than what we've seen in the past? Both are possible, but I'm not sure they're very likely. So History wouldn't be kind to the notion of the Fed being able to do a soft landing from inflation being this elevated. If you look at previous soft landing type episodes, let's say 1994, for example, you didn't have inflation elevated to this, to this point. So 
I think anything is possible, but I think it's quite unlikely. The, the bigger question to me is whether the politics permit the Fed to go through it. It's fine for the Congress to be concerned about inflation now, but as uh, demand destruction and job losses happen, how will the Congress feel? And only, only the Congress knows. So I think the jury's still out. Gotcha. And then before we wrap it up here, what are some patterns that you that we haven't seen talked about enough or aren't talked about at all that you're picking up in economics or in the current economic landscape right now? Well, one that people are picking up, but I think is still a very big change, is what's happening in the world of work. And so what will the future be in terms of remote work, hybrid work, sort of full-time work in the office? It's not just a question about individual preferences and whether I'm personally more or less productive doing one thing or the other, but it's a real story about how firms get organized and everything about how cities are constructed to the value of commercial real estate and the portfolios in which that commercial real estate sits. To me, this is a huge, huge question. Another really big question that nobody in politics talks much about on the right or the left, but it's super important is that our fiscal policy is way out of whack. You know, we have enormous rising debt burdens, particularly to service obligations to older Americans through Social Security and Medicare. The nation is almost surely going to have to spend more on defense than it did before. And per the points I was making in the book, we're underspending already on training and preparing people. That means that something's got to give. We're either going to have to raise taxes or reform the way in which we spend money, but we can't pretend that we can do everything with no budget. And I think eventually that story will have to be told. And speaking of work, I think one of the things that's come up more recently is quiet quitting. And I think one in four Americans are currently taking place in that. And basically what it means is that you're doing the minimum amount of work to get what to get your pay, right? To get your salary. And I think it's not a good idea. It's really bad. It's not good for production. But what are, do you think that will be a short-term thing? And then if not, how do you think we can get uh, people in the workforce to not quiet quit and keep fulfilling to their best of their abilities? Well, great question. I, I think and hope that it will be a short-term thing for a couple of reasons. One, you know, quiet quitting may seem right if you're talking about doing the same job for your whole life. But I think most of us aspire to change over the course of our careers and do other things. And the more we accomplish at one step leads us to the next step. The second reason is more just fun. I mean, I I love coming to work. I, I It would be hard for me to imagine that I would be as fulfilled doing the minimum part of my job. And I expect most people actually feel that way if you scratch the surface. Putting a shoe on the other foot to employers, I think more business leaders are encouragingly, in my view, thinking of, you know, how can we make work and the culture of the office and the firm more meaningful for people? And so that work becomes a more important part of their lives. So I I think and hope quiet quitting is a thing of the moment, but not for long. For sure. And to wrap it up here, what do you think are some your of your biggest takeaways for the audience? And then where can the audience find more about your book, The Wall and the Bridge? Well, I think the biggest takeaway from the book is the idea that all of these issues we talk about, about populism, the lack of dynamism in the country, parts of the country falling behind others, 
are really all sides of the same problem of a lack of noticing that growth and disruption are the same thing and that we have to do something about it by building by building bridges and pressing our leaders and our business leaders to do just that. The book is published by Yale University Press. Don't be afraid that it's a university press. It's not a hard read. And in fact, I wrote an essay with the same title in a journal called National Affairs that's an even more accessible version. I hope that we're going to pivot instead of the right and the left talking about capitalism versus socialism, that we pivot to this meaningful debate in our politics between walls and bridges and that more politicians come up with bridges. Definitely. I'll post a link to the in the episode description on where you can check out the book if anyone in the audience is interested in checking it out or purchasing the book. Well, first off, Dean Hubbard, it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. I greatly appreciate your time. Right, and, thank uh, you. I appreciate it.